Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, Mercy Church, I'm glad to be here with you this morning uh, from Nashville. Uh, as he said, I'm actually one of the unicorns that actually was from Nashville and didn't just move there. Uh, born and raised in that area, planted a church uh, 17 years ago, have Knowing Jesus Ministries uh, today as well, which really kind of our focal point with Knowing Jesus Ministries is help the next generation uh, stay, stay committed to Christ. Uh, I believe that the culture is going hard after the hearts and minds of the next generation. And I think the church, if, 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 if we want them, we better go after them. Them. If we want to keep them, we better ground them. We better deal with the hard issues and we better provide for them answers to questions. And so that's what we do uh, when knowing Jesus ministry. Some of your students will be coming uh, to our event next weekend in uh, Ridgecrest. So we're excited about that. Uh, also, I actually lived here in North Carolina for a short period of time uh, when I was down the road at Fort Bragg or whatever it is now. It's Fort something now. And um, I was in the 82nd Airborne. So I made gobs and gobs and gobs of money uh, jumping out of planes, $150 a month extra. And I've got the bad, the bad knees and back uh, to show for it. Um, I, I'm excited that we're talking about what we're, what we're diving into today. I know you guys have been uh, really working through hard questions in this series. You're, you're looking at things like, you know, is, why is Jesus the only way, right? Or, you know, how is Jesus the only way? And you're going to be looking at, you know, God's word and is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? How do we know this is what God has said? And there's all kinds of questions like that, right? How do we know that science and religion, like what, what do we do with all that? And uh, we're actually getting into a difficult question this morning. Did, did you know there was a study done about why there were professing believers who then walked away from the church and from faith in Jesus? Uh, University of Connecticut did a study and the number one answer that came out of that was that they couldn't get answers to their doubts and questions. The number one answer that they gave for why they went from at least acknowledging or professing a faith to walking away from it is they had questions that nobody gave them answers to. In fact, one respondent, still obviously angry, said this, Christians always use the word faith as their last word when they're too stupid to answer the question. I was like, wow, okay, uh, <laughs> a little harsh, but uh, here's the reality. That's not necessarily wrong, is it? In a lot of people's experience, a lot of churches don't deal with hard questions. Uh, a lot of people have real questions, real struggles, real challenges about the faith and why we believe certain things. And oftentimes in churches, when those questions get raised, people don't get good answers. They, they kind of get deflected, you know, just, just, you know, just believe, you know, just trust. And you don't, you know, we don't ask questions around here and we certainly don't give answers, right? So I'm really glad you guys are going into these types of things because there are answers. There are answers, but I don't know if there's a question that hits and strikes more nerves and more to the point uh, than the question of suffering. Why would a good God allow for evil and suffering in the world? Right, and the argument kind of goes like this. If there is a God who is loving and good and he's all powerful, 
And that kind of God would eradicate evil and suffering in the world. But since evil and suffering are not eradicated from the world, therefore, that God must not exist. Either God doesn't love us, or God isn't powerful enough to do something about it, or maybe it's both. That's how the argument goes. And it's not an unsound argument. It's not an unreasonable kind of equation here. If there is a God who loves us and he has all power, then doesn't it seem like that God would remove obstacles of suffering and trials and evil from the world that he created and has the power to fix? It's not a bad question. But Proverbs eighteen seventeen says this, the one who states this case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. I think this premise might sound right on the surface, but it needs to be examined. Several years ago, I had um, a friend that I grew up with. Uh, he was on social media just wearing people out. He had become an atheist, and he was one of those militant kind of atheists, one of those evangelistic kind of atheists. And, um, you know, he was on the platform that is always the best place for reasonable discourse, social media. And he was just jumping into people's posts, you know, like you just every post, it could have been like, man, it's a beautiful day today. God, you know, God gave us a beautiful day. And he'd be like, God didn't give this day. That's the reflection of the water from the sky and the atmosphere is like, whoa, dude, like, man. And, and as soon as people would try to come back at him, that's when he would, he would really go after them. And he, he was smart enough to have some real zingers that he could throw at Christians who weren't equipped to answer them. And so he felt like he was really just, you know, kicking some butt on social media. And, it, and I finally decided, I was like, because he's in our area and uh, I know there's people from our church that would see him post stuff. I was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer, not because I think I'm gonna change his mind, because I just want people to know, like, there's answers to the things he's saying. Okay, and so I got on there and, and, and we had some conversation back and forth and I was finally like, hey, I got a great idea. Why don't we get together and talk? Like, I would love to sit down and answer and go through all the questions, all the objections, all the issues that you have. And he agreed to it on the condition that we had a mediator there with us. And I was like, well, I'm not gonna punch you. I mean, I was like, <laughs> you know, I might want to, but yeah, you know, I'm just gonna talk over dinner, you know? but we still had a mutual friend come join us. And, uh, and he's a good dude. I've known him since we were in school, but we got there and immediately like after pleasantries, you know, he started jumping in like, you know, what about this? You know, what about that? And what about this? And I started answering those questions. Like I thought pretty good, you know, like I was given some, some legit, rational, logical, biblical answers. But what I began to realize is that he wasn't really interested in my answers because as soon as I would give him the answer, he would just jump to another question. As soon as I'd give an answer, he'd jump to the next thing. In other words, he wouldn't be like, hmm, it's a good point. I need to think about that. He'd go, okay, what about this? And he'd be like, well, well hold on. We didn't even deal with that. And he just did that over and over and over. And so finally I was like, you know what? Here, here's the deal. I realized that nothing I say, like in your, you're the judge and in your courtroom, no evidence I bring will ever be sufficient for you. You've already decided there can't be good answers to these things. So you're not even willing to listen. So let me just ask you some questions. And I started kind of putting him on the witness stand for a minute. Hey, help me to understand this world that you think came out of nothing, random, right? Nothing became everything in this fine-tuned universe that we have here. Explain to me beauty in a world that's just random and chaotic. Explain to me laws of logic. Explain mathematics for me. How do we have any of this in the world that you say exists, which has no order, it's chaotic, 
It's random. It has no meaning or purpose. And yet we have all of this order and all of this design and all of these things. And he couldn't answer any of those questions. He was really good at poking holes in other people's worldview. He wasn't really good at answering his own questions. And eventually this is what he did. Here, here was his defense. You ready? Okay. Tell me this. How could a God exist that allows for the wicked and evil and the suffering that happens in the world? And he was a police officer. And he had been on lots of calls where he saw lots of evil and wickedness. He talked about going into a home, a a house call where an elderly couple and the older lady had fallen and she had busted her head open. And she was laying on the floor and bleeding and her husband who was wheelchair bound, trying to get to his wife, fell out of his wheelchair and lay on the floor and watched her die. And he looked at me and he said this, where was God in that? Where was God? And I let the question just kind of hang there for a moment. And I, I looked him in his eyes and he had tears in his eyes. And I said to him, why do you care? So what? And he looked at me like, you're a pastor? I said, so what? If what you say about the world is true, if we're all just molecules in motion, if we're all just matter clashing against matter, what's the difference between this lady falling and you knocking over the orange juice and spilling it on the ground? What's the difference? If we're all just bags of chemicals, what's the difference between being in a carton and being in this bag of skin? If that's all we are, if that's all the world is. And he's like, you're telling me it doesn't matter? I said, no, 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 no. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm asking you why you think it matters. If what you believe about the world is true, then she's nothing but a puddle of atoms. Who cares? As the saying goes, I think stuff happens. How do you get to a place where you can say that ought not to be, this ought not to happen in a world that you say is random chaos, has no meaning or purpose, and we're no different than the blade of grass or the tire on the car or the cloud in the sky. We're nothing but another material thing. Why does it matter? You don't get all tore up when a lion eats a gazelle. You don't cry injustice. You don't say, how could God? Why is it that you think there's an issue with what happened there? Now, at this point, the light bulb was going on for him. He began to realize that he was being inconsistent. And and this is, I, I flipped from putting him in the corner to being pastoral. And I said, listen, here's why you care. Here's why you care. Because I know you do. I see by your emotions you care. Here's why you care. Because you understand that this woman is not just a bag of chemicals. She's made in the image of God. And you know deep inside that the world as we see it is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be like this. But here's the deal. If you claim to stand on the ground you stand on, then you have no right to say things ought not to be. There is no such thing as ought not to be. There's just only what is. In order for you to say things ought not to be implies that there's a world that has a standard that there is a set way that this world was made and something has gone awry. 
you have to actually believe in God. In fact, here's the thing I try to help him to realize. If there is no God, if there is no God, then there is no such thing as evil and suffering. Friends, hear this. If there is no God, then there is no such thing as evil and suffering. That category goes away. If there's no God, then there is no evil and suffering in the world because that would imply that there are bad things. There's not bad things in a world without God. There's just things. But we know that there is evil and we know that there is suffering. And there is something in us that says things ought not to be this way. So here's the real question. It's not that a world of suffering and evil means there is no God. There is a God. The question now for us to begin to ask is, then why would God, if he exists and he does, and he is loving and powerful and he is, why would that kind of God permit and allow evil and suffering in his world? Now that is the question we're gonna spend the rest of our time examining. If you have a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 50. If we have a God transcendent enough to be mad at because he hadn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have a God that's great enough and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it, even if we don't know why. Genesis chapter 50. I'm gonna read the passage and then, well, actually, you know what? I'm just gonna take it verse by verse here. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, that's Jacob, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So, so let's stop there for a moment. Uh, if you are not familiar with the story of Joseph, when, when they say pay us back for all the evil that we did to him, let's have a quick recap. Joseph is, the, is one of the youngest brothers of this set of brothers that are the sons of Jacob, and he's kind of the favorite. And dad gives him an, a jacket. He gives him a coat that's really special, and their other brothers don't get anything. So they're, they're, they're you know, a little jealous. They're, they're not really particularly fond of the fact that Joseph gets the attention. And then to make it worse, Joseph goes to them one day and says, listen, guys, I had a dream. And in this dream, you are all bowing down to me. And they didn't like that surprisingly. And so they decided that they were going to find a way to get rid of brother, the brother who thinks we're going to serve him. And so one day they decide we're going to kill him. That's it. We'll kill our brother. And then one of the brothers like, ah, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him off as a slave. So that's what they decided. They said, let's sell off Joseph as a slave. And they did. They sold him to an Egyptian merchant by the name of Potiphar. And then he gets to Potiphar's place and Eventually Potiphar gives him control of his estate and he's a good manager and everything under Joseph and Potiphar's home begins to prosper. Joseph, uh, Potiphar's so pleased with him, but Potiphar's wife also notices Joseph and notices that he's a handsome fella and she begins to make passes and advances at Joseph. But he's a man of character and integrity. He, he, he fends it off and says, no, I, I would not take for myself something that doesn't belong to me something that belongs to my master. But she wouldn't stop. She would not refuse. And she continued to make these advances at him until eventually one day she caught him alone and she seized him and Joseph fighting gets away from her, but she keeps his jacket. And she then changes the story and says, this slave you brought here has defiled our home and embarrassed us and made a mockery of us. 
He tried to make advances at me, but I got his coat before he got away. Joseph's put in prison. So his brothers try to kill him, decide to sell him, and then he's lied about and, and put into prison. Then in prison, he hears about a dream that Pharaoh has. He goes to interpret the dream and they take the interpretation, take it to Pharaoh, but they don't tell him that Joseph's the one that gave it. And the scriptures say that he spent two more years in the prison. It'll take you like two seconds to read that verse. And Joseph stayed two more years in that prison. And then you just keep on going as if he wasn't living every day in that prison, right? Two years. I want you to think about what's happened to this man at this point. Between betrayal from his brothers, the maligning of his character, being put into a prison, forgotten, and he's innocent. If you want to say there's been injustice and sin and evil done against him, you would be fair to say that. But eventually he interprets another dream. He's like, ah, uh, you're not gonna fool me again. Let me tell him. So he interprets the dream to Pharaoh and eventually he's put at the right hand of power. Now I'm gonna save you like several chapters of cat and mouse. He eventually, he sees his brothers because this famine that is coming over all the land is made its way to the outskirts to where Jacob and his sons live. And so Jacob sends his sons into Egypt to get grain, to get food. And lo and behold, who's in charge of food distribution? Joseph. And Joseph, dressed like Egyptian culture, recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And there's this little cat and mouse game where he stuffs their packs full of food, but also like a silver cup. And then he sends people to go like, hey, you stole this. And there's all this stuff that happens. And eventually he reveals his identity. And once they realize it's their brother, they are shook. We're dead, we're gone, right? We've done all this to him and now he's got all this power and instead he tells them to come and live with them, to go get Jacob, their father, who by the way thinks he's dead. And so Jacob is hesitant to go because he has only known where he's been and the Lord tells him, don't be afraid to go in for I will build you to a great nation there. And so this is what is meant when it says, when Jacob dies, they're afraid that Joseph will hate them and pay them back for the evil that they did. In other words, their reasoning is this. Well, the only thing that was keeping us alive was dad. And now that dad's gone, Joseph's probably gonna get his revenge. So this is what they do. So they send a message to Joseph, verse 16, saying, your father gave us this command before he died. <laughs> Which is awesome because it's like, who knows if Jacob said this, but they're like, we're gonna tell him dad said this. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. So they're like, look, dad just wanted us to let you know that you should probably forgive us but you know what? If you do, we'll just be your servants. You know, like we'll just come and serve you. And Joseph responds in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? In other words, is it for me to take vengeance on you? As for you, here, here it is. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear for I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them 
and spoke kindly to them. So, so Joseph says to them, no, nonsense. No, here's the deal. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. I want you to catch this. Joseph does not say what you did wasn't bad. He doesn't say, oh, don't, don't worry about it. You didn't really do anything that bad. He says, what you meant for evil, you were doing something with malice and intent. God meant for good, not, not God used for good. God meant for good. Here's what this is, in, is implying to us and showing us. They were through their own volition and will making decisions. They were acting against Joseph. They meant this for evil, but simultaneously, watch this, God was acting, not using, not, not making lemons, lemonade out of lemons. He was intending, he was meaning for good. God was at work at the exact same time through the exact same actions. You could even say like this, God was sovereignly bringing about these actions for his own purposes, though they were doing these actions for their own purposes. You tracking with me? That's the issue here. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you wanna know what the psyche of Joseph is therefore? The whole time he's enduring this suffering, these trials, these pains, these, these crushing rejections and betrayals, he recognizes that what they are doing is evil, but he is trusting that God is at work for good. This is why John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. God is always at work in your life. God is always moving and acting, even in the midst of pain and troubles and sorrows. And you may not see what he's doing, but you are to trust that he is doing something, that he is at work. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace, but before they're thrown into the furnace, you remember what they said to Nebuchadnezzar? Our God can save us. And that's the part we love. Woohoo! yes, God saves us. And then they said, but even if he doesn't. In other words, their theology had a place that said, God has the power and ability to save us, but he might choose not to for his own reasons. And even if he doesn't rescue us, we're still not bowing the knee. We will serve him alone. Do you have a place in your theology for the God who can save you but may leave you in the trial? John the Baptist fate faced the same struggle in the prison cell, sending messengers to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Why would he ask that question? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because he's been in this cell now for 11 months wondering why Jesus hadn't got him out. And he was left there. And he never left it. You see, God can remove us from our pain and suffering, but if he leaves us in it, it's because he's doing something through it. You see, what... Joseph understood, and he says it in this text, God meant this for good so that many people might be saved through the famine. Now, I want you to think about this. Do you know how big Jacob's family was? you know how big Israel was at that point? 70 people. There's more of you in this room than there was in that nation. And God told Jacob, don't be afraid to go into there. I'm gonna build you to a great nation there. And that gets us all jacked up. Like, yeah, that's awesome. 300 years later, Moses is leading them out of Egypt. The Exodus, how many people are there? 
600,000 men, not including women and children. Most scholars believe there's millions leaving Egypt during the Exodus. 70 to millions. I will build you to a great nation. What was the context of God fulfilling that promise? Suffering. They were slaves, oppressed. Was God fulfilling his promise? Yes. You see, God is always doing something in the things that are happening, even when we can understand it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We love that. We put on our coffee mugs, right? We got t-shirts. And do not lean on your own understanding. That's the hard part. Because that's a contrast, isn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That sounds great. Until the, the problem isn't going away. And the suffering is still going. And the marriage isn't getting better. And the wayward child doesn't seem to be close to making the turn yet. And the health issue is still there. And the painful past of that breakup or that abuse or whatever it is that you've gone through, the job doesn't seem to be getting better. The business is about to shut down and he leaves you in it. The question is, is can you trust him instead of leaning on your own understanding? See, I think for a lot of Christians today, we think in order for God to be faithful, he has to keep the pathway clear for me of all pain and suffering. He never promises that. That's never promised to us. Jesus says, you will have trouble. You will have problems. Paul had suffered so much and we only have him asking Jesus for reprieve one time in scripture. Three times he says, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? And Jesus's answer was, you got it, buddy. You've been through a lot and this one's on me. It's not what he said. Don't, don't look for that. That's not what he said. <laughs> what he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 was, my grace is sufficient for you. Instead of removing him from the suffering, Jesus's answer is, I'm enough for you in your suffering. Because God is at work doing things you don't see. This isn't theory for me and my family. I know for some of you, you're like, yeah, but it's easy for you to say. You don't know what it feels like to be where I'm at right now. You don't know the struggles with this, this past hurt that I've dealt with. And I, I get it. Maybe I don't know yours, but I know mine. My family and I, my wife and I, our first child was born with health issues and we had to remove a bad kidney and the surgery went wrong and they took his good kidney and his bad kidney. And our whole lives were thrown upside down. We were 24 years old, 23 and 24. We had no concept for going through suffering and trials and, and trying to know where God was in the midst of it. For two years, he did dialysis awaiting a kidney transplant. We got one. Life got better for a period of time. You know, we we raised our boy, he was on medications and you know, went to the doctor all the time and he would get sick with things that you and I wouldn't get sick with. But, but he, we had our boy, he went to school, he played sports, he got online and gamed with his buddies and screamed at the TV. He suffered as a long suffering Tennessee Vols fan. <laughs> but when he was 13 years old, he got sick and went to the hospital and went unconscious for three weeks. He had something called fungal meningitis and he ended up having a stroke and losing his ability to talk and walk and all of his motor skills. 
Even after rehab, he never regained his ability to speak. And so we learned new ways to communicate with our son. But we had a 13-year-old boy who went from playing and going to school with his friends and gaming online to he can't do anything, can't even initiate a conversation. And two years later, we went into the hospital with lung issues. We had done that many times, many, many times over the years, except for this time, we didn't get to bring our boy home. On December 1st, 2019, nearly four years ago, my wife and my two girls and our family and friends were around my son's bed and we sang hymns and read scripture and we said goodbye to him. And so I may not know your pain, but I know ours. And I know the questions that we've asked along the way. Where are you, God? Why is this happening? What are you doing? And here's what we finally come to the place where we realize is that we are living for promises greater than today's comfort. These present afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. God is a very present help in times of trouble. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I wrote a book on that verse, Uncommon Trust, because trusting God in life's trials is not common, even for believers. Usually we trust God when the circumstances are right. What about when they're all messed up? What about when like our family, you face and go through your worst fear? Well, what you do begin to learn as you collapse in dependence on the God who holds you is that his grace is sufficient for you and his comfort is real and his power to sustain your faith is more than your ability to sustain yourself. And here's what you recognize in the midst of that pain and that hurt and those troubles is you start looking and leaning heavily on God's promises and you start believing that the one who's going to redeem all things one day is gonna keep you in his grip until that day. And you're trusting that he's at work, maybe even like in a day like this where I get to come here and share with people like you and my son's suffering and our family's suffering may be just one little link in the chain to help you and yours. That God is at work in 10,000 ways and maybe this is one of three of them I get to see but are you trusting God? Are you looking for the day where he makes all things new? Because that's the promise. The promise isn't life clean and easy here and now. See, that's why he sent his son. See, God's not indifferent to our suffering. And your suffering is not an evidence that God doesn't love you. Quite the contrary, the evidence that God loves you and that God cares about your suffering is that he himself has suffered. He came in the flesh. He came and suffered firsthand rejection, despair, horrible, horrible physical agony, loneliness, and on and on and on. And why did he do that? Not only so that he could have the experience himself, but so that he could take upon him sin and wrath. He took on suffering and pain to rescue us. He paid for our sins so that ultimately he could eradicate evil and suffering without eradicating us. And the promise of an empty tomb is that he's the first fruits from the dead and all who are found in him, though they die, will live forever. 
I read 1 Corinthians 15 at my son's graveside because our hope is that an empty tomb means one day we too are gonna raise to new life. And that's why we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Suffering will release your grip from this world and have you longing for the one to come. My daughter asked me, my youngest, about a year after Caleb died, she said, Dad, why didn't God just fix everything? I asked, oh, sweetheart, he's going to fix everything. There's a day coming when suffering will be no more and sin will be no more. She said, no, no, Dad, I know that. I'm saying if it's going to be that way one day, why didn't God just start it that way? And of course, I'm giving all the like pastor daddy answers and I'm like, well, he, he did start that way, sweetheart. But you know, and then sin came into the world, right? We rebelled against God. And she's like, Dad, I know that. She, she said, you said that when Jesus comes back, then those things won't happen again and they won't ever be able to happen again. I said, that's right. She said, so why didn't God just start it that way where it could never be another way? And I'm like, you're seven? <laughs> and then I prayed a really silent prayer, Lord, please protect her little heart and mind. And this was my answer. And it's the best answer I had then. It's the best answer I have now. God could have created the world where we would never experience any hurt, any pain, any sin, any suffering. And yet in that world, we would actually never know God for who he truly is. All the attributes of God that we know are attributes that we experience because of the things we experience in life. You would never know God is gracious and merciful if you weren't in need of grace and mercy. You would never know God is compassionate or sustainer or helper if you didn't find yourself in need of those things. You would never know God and all of his greatness if you didn't know him through the lenses of all the things that we have suffered and endured and God has demonstrated his ultimate faithfulness to be for us what we could never be for ourselves. And it's that kind of world with hurt and pain and rejection and sin and evil that one day in the coming of Jesus will be fully eradicated and in glory, we will see how God redeemed all things and he will get more glory in that kind of world from those kind of redeemed people than he would in a world that in which we would never experience or know those things. And other than that, I don't have a great answer. But here's what I know. I know on the other side of eternity, we will never wonder, God, how could you? God, why did you? Because our first breath in heaven will make 80 years of pain seem as nothing. Do you trust God and his promises for that? Between that day and where you are now, are you willing to live in the in-between trusting God in the midst of evil and suffering? As you see the things happening in Israel and the scenes and the horror coming out of there, are you trusting that God works all things, even these things for the good of those who love him? 
that he is at work even when we're in the jail cell and we're being betrayed and our character's being maligned? Are we trusting that God is meaning for good things that are happening even if I don't see them? That's faith. It's not faith to say, I see it all, I understand it all, I'm good with it, God. It's faith when we don't see any of these things. We can't trace his hand, so we have to learn to trust his heart. And I can tell you on the other side of the worst imaginable pain, and it's a daily grief. I miss my boy so much that God is a sustainer. He is a keeper. He is a helper. He is good. And if he has been that for me, friends, he is no respecter of persons. He will be that to you as well. And whatever you face and anything you go through, when Jesus tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, he didn't mean it for Paul alone. He means it for all who belong to him. Look at the cross of Christ and remember how much God loves you. And remember what he has done to ensure that suffering and evil never have the last word. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. And we praise you and give you all the glory this morning to comfort your people. Would you draw near to those who are suffering and hurting this morning? Would you remind them of your goodness? Will you help them not to lean on their own understanding, but to look to you to be their helper, their comfort, and their supply of strength and grace in their time of need? Oh, we lift our eyes to you. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. You are good. Remind us of that, even in the midst of our pain. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things unseen. And we trust the God who is at work in every way for good. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name.